Hello and welcome to another episode of New Narratives Political Agenda, hosted by me, PJ Tham. Uh, I am wearing a red and black batik shirt and I'm sitting in front of a bookshelf. This podcast is brought to you by New Narrative, a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia. And if you like this podcast, please do join us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. We are entirely supported by membership revenue. So uh, we really do need your help and support to keep alive. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And today we've got with us Maisara Aljaru, uh, who is a writer, researcher, and most recently was seen as part of the play Brown is Haram. Hello, Maisara. Hi, PJ. Hi, everyone. I'm Maisara. I'm wearing a pink and grey dress, and I'm sitting behind a tiled um, background. And my pronouns are she and her. Thank you. I have for- to say that, that that tiled background is really beautiful. <laughs> Thank it's- you. Yes, it's just wallpaper. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I thought it was, it was tiles. <laughs> but those are traditional tiles found in um, homes in Singapore, right? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, when I decided I wanted to revamp my room in my family house, you know, like me and my mom were like, okay, this is really cool. Definitely had to get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really looks nice. Um, okay, so, so my Sarah, tell us about yourself, what you do and how you got into it and, um, and so on. Uh, right, so my day job currently is um, a strategist at a tech company. So previously, I was a journalist and producer with um, a mainstream media um, in Singapore. Well, we don't have to say which one, you can guess either. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so I was working there for a couple of years, started off as an intern. And then I left in um, 2018 to do my master's, where currently I'm researching on mainstream media narratives on the Malay development. So I'm finishing my thesis now. Um, and I think by chance, you know, when I was working in mainstream media and understanding how it works and how close, you know, the state or very much, you know, the state is involved in it, um, I grew fascinated in unpacking narratives about my community and myself. So I started out um, writing, you know, I've, I've written and published in a um, few publications, including Buddhist Critic and Growing Up From One. And, and then by chance, um, Objectives, which is um, a gallery that focuses on Southeast Asian uh, photographers and filmmakers, offered me to do an exhibition for their um, women in film and photography program they have every year. So this was in 2019. And that was when I realized that my two of my interests, which is academia and art, um, could be placed together. Right? I realized that art and academia um, are both in some sense insular, in their own way. And I was very fascinated in how I can bring these two together. So along the way, I guess I decided to um, look into narratives and structures and papers that like academics and professors have written about race and use art as a platform to, um, I guess, make it easier for like your everyday person to understand. So my motto has always been, if my mom doesn't understand, um, then mm-hmm. I have failed. <laughs> or oh, if the right. you know, at right. a nasi parang soul doesn't understand, then I have failed. Right. Yeah. So um, that has always been, I think, my motive. Also because you know, um, I have like family and friends of all different backgrounds, and we and I've come to realize we all share similar experiences. It's just that how we are de- like talking about it or how we deliver about it is different. And of course, I think as 
one of the so-called educated Malays, you know, I am seen quite differently. You know, people do listen to me. And I think that is something that I hope to break in, in the future where you don't have to have a degree or master's degree or PhD for people to understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. Okay, gosh, lots, lots to unpack there. Um, but let's start with why decide to go into this career from one in the mainstream media, right? What makes a person in Singapore, um, especially, you know, you're a double minority being a woman in Malay, um, give up something that seems very comfortable and safe where you could actually, um, you know, from that position, you would have the security to take some risks to actually strike out on your own, do this master's, do this writing and take all those risks and in an effort to, you know, understand your community and, and create change? I think it came from realizing that no matter how educated I can be, um, even if they listen to me more, I know that I'm never going to be seen as like an equal. So then that question for me would be, do I want to stay in an environment where I have to like, shout in a sense to be heard or like you know only be uh, or I always have to be in a constant state of you know am I doing enough you know um and live in this like constant anxiety that that you know any mistake that you made is going to be attributed to your race mm -hmm. so I decided it wasn't actually like the best is like environment because it wasn't helping me in terms of my mental health um and this whole, like, you know, the very backhanded compliments that I would get outside would be like, oh, wow, you know, you're educated. Oh, wow, you're working in the mainstream media. You know, I don't see a lot of Malays working in English, you know, um, um, networks, you know, because people uh, immediately assume that you're like a reporter for like Berita Harian or Surya because like there's nothing wrong, of course. It's just that this assumption that you cannot produce content for the wider society. Um, it is a backhanded compliment. So I decided, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and I needed to be in an environment where I feel like um, I can really um, achieve what I want to, you know, without that constant anxiety, without feeling like, you know, um, I'm going to bring my whole community down. It sounds very loaded, but I think at that point it was something that I, um, that I felt constantly, you know, and I needed to like get myself out of it, you know, where I am not constantly in, env in an environment where I feel that, um, they are also reproducing, I guess, sentiments uh, about my community that is, you know, um, I would say it's not true, right? And also, you know, lacks a lot of research and understanding. So I realized that um, being, a, like, as you mentioned, a, a double minority, um, I needed change. And I guess I had that privilege of leaving to, to find my own space. Yeah. Right. And so why um, do the masters and work on these narratives? Was there something that in particular you know, triggered that interest as opposed to doing something else? Yeah. So um, I think when um, I was in the process of deciding about whether I wanted to leave my job, um, I have friends who were completing their master's who just completed their master's. Um, so like for those who are not like familiar with me, I'm doing my master's in the Malay Studies faculty in NUS. So I had friends there and we're talking about it. And, and I realized that I feel like there needs to be more research on mainstream media narratives on the Malay community. So I read um, one of the professor's paper, Dr. Sriani, where she looks at this term of uh, problematic Malays and how it has developed in the mainstream media. So especially like nowadays, where suddenly everyone wants to talk about race, even the mainstream media is start starting to make documentaries and content about race. Um, 
it still lacks a lot of nuances, I feel, and understanding of how um of how such narratives uh, are formed, you know, and how how the state is also very much uh, responsible for such of these narratives um, that we know of as, to, as of today. Yeah, so I decided that, you know what, this an area of my interest, you know, media has always been something like, uh, that is of my interest, but I wanted to go further than what I was doing. So I decided, you know what, why not like look at this for my master's thesis? Oh, great. Okay. So what are these narratives? What is your research telling you? Um, so for me, because there's a lot, obviously a lot of things like going on, what I've always been fascinated and like looked into is understanding this idea of progress, right? And year after year in the National Day, like rarely you hear the Prime Minister say, like having a special like speech in Malay, thanking all, all the Malay communities like for progressing, you know, like just a, a good job. And of course, when you grow up, they're like, oh, okay, great. You know, like my community is doing great. But when you grow older, you realize it's actually a very condescending um, way of addressing the issue, issues that the community is facing. Um, and and it's, it has always been framed as it's a you problem. Your community is not doing well. You guys need to catch up. Um, but there's never an understanding of why. Why did that happen? When did that start? Um, uh, why are we still not like catching up to the other communities? Right, so you can you can go on on TV and live TV and tell all of us we're doing well, but it still does not address the underlying issues that we are still facing currently. So, um, what I've seen so far, I think in my research is that you you see that I guess you know I think because people are a bit more outspoken about race now, you see that the the headlines change a little bit, but when you read further, you realize like hey, you know like not much has changed. It's still very condescending. Um, and you know, and more interestingly, you see more like more and more narratives coming from the Malay com Malay elites, um, even like you know, uh, even more, you know, talking about how we need to progress. Um, in some sense, we are doing better than like even Malays in Malaysia. You know, we are better Muslims. We have to be better Muslims than like like Muslims in in Malaysia, which I honestly don't understand why there's even a need to like compare. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just a very condescending tone that has been going on since forever, you know, and, and I'm very fascinated, I think, hopefully along the way, beyond like narratives to see how that um, affects the community and how we see ourselves. Okay, before we start unpacking each one, um, what other narratives do you see? I mean, if I can volunteer um, very carefully the crude stereotypes that we usually see, right? The first is the whole um, that the Malay community uh, related to what you're saying is not as interested in progress. Usually under the euphemism, Malays are more family oriented, you know, that Malays aren't interested in modern capitalism. Um, very problematic. Um, I think perhaps another one is that, uh, that um, Malays are... And I think there's a correlation to um, crime, right? Higher numbers in uh, convicted of crime in prison. Um, there's another narrative about diet, um, that Malays are less healthy because of the food you eat. Are these uh, stereotypes, um, these, are these also part of the mainstream media narratives? Have you looked at them? Yes, definitely. Like this... Uh 
like frequent narratives that we hear over and over again. Um, food would be a very interesting one. I think if I'm not wrong, 2012, there was an article at today where they had a picture of um, nasi lemak and roti prata and the headline was, you know, Malays and Indians are more prone to diabetes. Um, and that made me laugh because there's this assumption that like, oh, um, like, you know, that's, that's all we eat every day, nasi lemak and like para. So one, there's a lack of understanding of what Malay cuisine is. And I remember the article very, um, I, I found it very interesting because they, they got a quote from a Malay man, a Malay uncle, because I think he was in like, the article was in his 50s. And he said, um, yes, you know, the problem with Malays is that we like, you know, the Chinese are more active. He said that in the article. And then he proceeded to say that the Malays, all we do is we go to the beach, have a picnic and swim. And I was thinking to myself, isn't swimming a physical activity? <laughs> you know? And, you, and, and when you go to the beach and you see like, you know, um, um, if you see um, Malay families, the kids are running around, they are playing, you know. So everyone does that. It's, it's not a race issue. Right, when you go to the, to the beach to have picnic, but I found it fascinating that you know this internalized like narrative, like yes, my community is lazy, you know, we don't exercise, you know, even when we swim, it's still not considered like a physical activity. Um, and then I remember the article also states um that you know we have like late night suppers and things like that. But I'm like, mm, I think that's exclusive to every community. You know, it depends on which area you live. If you go to like Geylang, you have a lot of Chinese like uh, mm. food shops open like till late at night. You know, so that part is missing. But of course, you know, this whole idea when it comes to food and health about how that links to um, the socioeconomic classes of minorities, right? Um, and whether the minorities have access to proper healthcare, to fresh food, right? And and I remember that this lady who, this Malay lady, she does this, um, um, I guess it's like a weekly activity, weekly activity where she gets... Um, fresh produce from the market you know where, where it's produced like vegetables where people don't want to buy because it maybe it's not it doesn't look as green the leaves doesn't look as green she takes them and she gives it to um, people living in low-income housing and one of the things she told me is that yeah you know because um people would be like you know when you see all these like um I guess state run like uh, organizations giving out, oh, well, you know, we are here, let's give out fr like free food to the needy. It's always unhealthy canned food, right? You don't think about, okay, you know, we need to give them fresh produce so that they can, they can have like a balanced diet. So it does correlate, health does obviously correlate as a lot of like research people have shown to how, um, 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 it, uh, how it relates to socioeconomic class. Right. right, I think that's a, like the most important thing that we don't hear about. You know, right. um, why you know there's an like we see like a high numbers of like percentages of Malays living in rental flats, and right. how that links to you know why we do we see like so there are so many Malays with health issue, health problems. You know, and and it's so funny also. You know, when you do your research on the ground, you talk to the community. You know, one of the things they will always say. You know, all this like um young Malay men, you know, or like abang abang, so I like to call them, they'd be like, huh, you know, they call us lazy, but we work two jobs, you know, we have like to make sure that our family lives, you know, comfortably. Um, so do we, are we going to say that they are lazy and that they're unhealthy, they're just sitting in, in homes and things like that? And I think, you know, with everything you say, and, and, the, and I think the umbrella um, stereotype of Malays being lazy and that we don't we don't desire that the idea of success is we, you know, is this assumption that we don't desire the Chinese majority's idea of like capitalist success, right? 
um, because um, even though I guess like right now I do have like a corporate job, that's not my idea of like success, right? You need to get a job to pay your school fees, to pay the bills, to have your family. Um, but just because someone doesn't have like, a, oh, you know, I want to work in a bank, in a CBD, you know, um, um, and then like, you know, go, go for a staycation at the end of the month, um, which is why I think, you know, the very consumerist idea of what success is doesn't mean someone is not successful. And I think over time, even like younger Malays who, of course, you know, you, you see more educated Malays, Malays having better paying jobs as compared to like their parents era, you know, they may not necessarily like subscribe to this very Chinese centric idea of what success is, you know, because also we realize that idea, that circle of, 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 of successful, successful Chinese majority will never include us, right? Um, and I guess, you know, when, when they say that Malays don't aspire to that, it's really, I guess, it, sometimes it feels like, come, well, I won't say sometimes it feels, it really does come from the majority's bias idea of a minority, you know? Um, and, and this expectation of us to, to break or to form our identity into what the majority wants. You know, so I always say, you know, right, to be Singaporean is to be Chinese because, you know, mm. um, the Chinese ideal of what success is and what being a Singaporean is, is what forms Singapore today, right? And the moment you don't fall, fall into it, you don't conform yourself into it, you're not seen as successful, you're seen as lazy. Um, yeah. So, okay, uh, again, well, so much to unpack. <laughs> yeah. um, so first of all, your picnic anecdote actually reminds me of how um, the government and elites um, talked about communism in the 50s, right? Uh, because what you saw is a lot of Chinese trade unions which uh, and student groups, right, who were the main sources of resistance to colonial rule, they would go off and have picnics and they would talk to each other about politics because, of course, you know, you're decolonizing. Politics is important. So in the official documents, what you see is, oh, this is a classic communist technique of self-study, you know, and therefore these people must all be communists and probably linked to communist China. But the fact was, right, everyone was doing picnics. You see <laughs> Malay organizations, Indian trade unions, right? Anyone who was working class or poor, both, you know, anyone not part of the elite, which was 90, 95% of Singapore back then, because think about Singapore in the 50s. What are you going to do if you want to hang out with your friends? Where are you going to go? It's not like there were so many free places or cheap places. And we, we were very poor back then, right? So the easiest way to socialize and have a good time is to go and have a picnic in a park or on the beach. That's why everyone was doing it. But somehow for groups that the government assume were communist, this was classic form of Chinese indoctrination and self-study. But for Malays doing it, oh, look, it's the Malays, they're having fun, you know. It's so, the activity itself was more of how you looked at the activity said more about the people looking at you than about who you were. And so that reminds me, you know, very much of, of that. And, and your, your anecdote reminds me of that. And again, it's the same thing, that how we interpret things actually depends very much on our already internalized values. And it sounds like what you're describing is that your community itself, because of the dominance of these narratives, has also internalized many of these values. Would that be would that be accurate? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, and it's so it's so funny, right? Like even an activity like be, like going on a picnic is racialized, 
Yeah. Right? Yes. And but you know, it's just an activity of people like relaxing after a long day of work or just wanting to spend time with each other. Um, but of course, you know, that falls into this whole idea of like how we um how everything is racialized in Singapore, right? I mean, with the wonderful CMIO that you know everyone knows about, where if you do something that's not stereotyped in your community, you know, then there's something wrong with you. Oh, you know, mm. like um, I had a friend, I have a friend who's Chinese and she was telling me, yeah, you know, like you you'll hear she'll hear narrative like, oh, you, you know, don't 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 be lazy like um the Malays, right? Or like the moment she takes a break, oh, why are you so lazy? You want to don't don't be like a Malay. So it's, it's to me it's quite like it's I felt bad for her in that sense where this idea to be like a Chinese also to be like working 24-7. Yeah. You yeah, know, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's really exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> is it the extreme ends where the Chinese are always working and the Malays are just like not doing anything, and anything that falls in between, um, or has a balance doesn't exist, right? Okay. Um, if, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Yeah. And so I just wanted to like bring that up where that where I think no one is allowed to have a balance, you know, and that's where um all these stereotypes like comes about. Okay, so if I can challenge you a bit, my Sarah, though, it sounds like you're also racializing things a bit yourself because you, you talk about the Chinese majority and to be in Singapore is, is to be Chinese. And of course, there's a lot there that is uh, true, but what you're, it sounds like you're describing is capitalism and neoliberal capitalism and the forces of it acting upon all of us where uh, for your community... Um, the problem is essentially poverty, right? Um, where studies have shown it's very, very hard to get out of poverty, no matter where you are in the world, um, because there are a lot of self-perpetuating characteristics within capitalism that benefit the, the elites, those who have capital. You know, Piketty has described how capital grows at a faster rate than um, income, uh, you know, wage income. Um, and then also we have mechanisms of meritocracy, for example. Meritocracy has been shown, right, to not be actually meritocratic, but a system through which the elite justify benefiting themselves and, and reproducing themselves, right? That's why we have a scholarship system. And then people who get the scholarship, 99% look exactly like the elite. And then there's the 1% token, you know, who, are, who don't look like the elite. And then that's evidence that it succeeds. Um, and then, of course, like there are plenty of Chinese who don't subscribe to that view of success, yeah. right? I mean, if I can offer myself, I've, I've never sought a corporate job or a high-paying one, you know, and I'm quite content to not earn much, but I do something that's really fulfilling and important, you know. And indeed, conventionally in Singapore, what I've done is, is, is suicide, right? Because I've made an enemy of the entire establishment, the system, so um, if I can suggest what it sounds like is we're talking about structures of neoliberal capitalism. And it's just because Singapore's majority are Chinese, they have um, taken on those as the, as the boundaries, as the gates that must be kept, right? Whereas uh, if you look at the elite in Malaysia, right, it's uh, the Malays who, um, you know, the conservative Malay leadership who have created the boundaries and the Chinese who, who are adapting to that by behaving more Malay, becoming Muslim and so on and so forth. So in every country, what we see is really that 
um, the forces of capitalism and nationalism, right? That's another thing um, that you're talking about things on a very, uh, on you know, nas- nationalist in terms of nations, not in terms of states. The, the Chinese race, aka nation, the Malay race, aka nation, you've constructed these boundaries and borders. So it sounds like um, we've also kind of internalized some of these, these, these boundaries in terms of nations when really um, what we should be thinking about structurally is that it's neoliberal capitalism, it's nation-state nationalism. You know, these, these are the forces acting upon us. And in some ways, the majority in Singapore are, especially the Chinese, the, 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 the elites, right, are reproducing that. And there are bigger, deeper structural issues than simply, you know, Chinese and Malay. Yes, um, but also I think, you know, when we talk about neoliberal, like, economics i'm not an expert in this but you know when i talk about the development of neoliberal like, economics you know i don't think it's ever like relinquishes racist underpinnings um, oh, of course that, yeah no 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 yeah yeah of course so um, i mean the, that's how you create boundaries right through race yeah. so know. i think in an ideal situation i i hear what you're saying in an ideal situation like you know um we would like to like not like kind of like put ourselves into it and I think I'm, I'm going to admit it is a struggle you know in that sense like I don't want to see things in, 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 in race right because then I'm just like you say internalizing it but also how do I address this issue without um, ignoring you know um, these very racist like structures mm. um, so I think there's something that um, I feel like we there's a lot of conversation like um, that still needs to be done you know, I think one personally one like form of frustration I have is you know when we talk about race and development in Singapore, um, the whole conversation revolves around the 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 term Chinese privilege, right? And people yeah. argue about it for like one hour, but nothing really gets like yeah. solved. You know, um, or like oh, this is a Western like concept. You know, and if another party will be like oh, everything is Western, and it just that that never progresses in the aspect. Um, I think for me. The question would be, you know, um, we talk about structures, you know, have we done anything at all in removing these structures? Um, and I think the answer is no, you know, we, we haven't done it. Um, the state, even though they claim that, oh, you know, like, yes, you know, we see that this is an issue and we need to address it. They have not done anything about it. And and for me, the reason why I feel that way is because they are still conforming, um, still conforming, things to, to what the majority wants. We take mm. a very simple example of like, oh, Singapore is not ready for non-Chinese um, prime minister. Um, I okay, mean, that's like, nonsense. We, yeah, you know, right? like, we all okay, know that's nonsense. Yeah, you know, and, and who? It's not even the like young Chinese, but we're talking about like the old, you know, Chinese community, like who's gate, gatekeeping this in that sense. So, okay, we get it. That's who you're pleasing. And then the whole hijab issue. Um. It does like rob me, and I think a lot of like uh, Muslim women the wrong way when um when it said, oh um you know we, we are concerned about how the non-Muslims are going to take to Muslim, more Muslim more Muslim women wearing the hijab or the tudung, and I'm just like okay so why are we still giving space right to people who um do not see us as part of the community who are racist or who are Islamophobic. You know, yeah. we are still living in a society that 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 conforms to that. 
So then I think for me, as at least for like a young Malay Muslim woman would be, um, how do you tackle this issue, right? Mm. How do you listen to this like um, um, to the to the to what this to what the state is saying, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 try and convince them like, hey, you know, like we we shouldn't be racializing things, but at the same time realizing that if if you completely the, ignore the barriers of race in, in trying to bring that up, it's not going to go like anywhere um, either. You know, and within the Malay community, like if I can share PJ, like I was once in, um, it was like a closed door like session, you know, with like some committee leaders and, and, and the idea was, you know, we have all these like issues that the Malays are facing, let's try and solve them. So the severe, severe Malays, right? Let's gather all these like educated Malays together. And this Malay uncle who was part of the community, he said this, he was like, oh, we need to form more spaces, like more art spaces, um, uh, for the uh, for the Malay youths because we cannot make it when it comes to education. When it comes mm. to academics, we cannot make it, you know? And then I was like, I think a couple of us were like, huh? And then he went on to say, yeah, you know, like how, you know, um, the Blacks succeeded at basketball, you know, that's how we are. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this guy has like, not just internalized it, but what worried me was that um, he is who I guess the community see, would see as a mentor. Right? right, and right. if you've already had that biasness that your community is like that, um, then, then, how are you gonna actually like break out of of this vicious cycle? Right. Um, yeah. So I think you know it's a very interesting interesting question that you brought up and and challenge that you've posed. You know, and and I won't say I have an answer as of now. You know, well, that, that a constant like a battle that we are yeah. we are facing. Yeah. Well, let, let me. I mean, let me pose it a different way. Right. Um. Is racism a symptom or the cause uh, of of the of the divisions and you know the poverty in your community of the um, you know the soft bigotry the um, stereotypes right and can you solve it by focusing on race or do you need to transcend it because okay so here's 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 the counter argument right and this is a very old argument that dates back decades to you know, that Singaporeans were having in the 50s when we were talking about how do we build uh, a nation state after independence and transcend race? Because the argument is, if you struggle for the rights of any community within the whole political unit, okay, let's call it country for a shorthand, okay? So if you struggle for the, the rights of any community within the country as a whole, you in the short term, deepen the differences between that community and everyone else. And you can potentially alienate everyone else against your community because the problem is every community feels that they're oppressed or a minority in a certain way, right? The majority of the Chinese community, you know, it's another myth that the Chinese are rich. The majority of the Chinese community are descended from coolies we've never been rich, right? We're all working class. It's only a very tiny minority, the descendants of either the tycoons or, you know, modern day elites, politicians, civil servants who are rich and elite. So they, and and also let's not forget the other bugbear of the Chinese community or the Indian community is language, right? Their languages, they also feel discriminated against. So 
not to say that anyone is more discriminated or less discriminated against, right? Intersectionality, but to say that everyone believes they are discriminated against and feels that they are discriminated against and historically have cause to feel that they're discriminated against in Singapore, which is very, you know, um, dominated by, uh, I think Michael Bard uh, defined five characteristics of the elite, right? Including that you're male, you've, uh, you're English educated, right? You're ethnic Chinese, um, and uh, you've done NS, right? And to a lesser extent, the last one I think is that you're Christian, right? So if you're not all five, um, then you have some cause to feel discriminated against, and that's 95% of Singapore. So the question comes back to, if you keep talking about race, does that make things better or worse? Um, how do you build a community that ends discrimination if you only talk about the manifestations of it rather than the structural causes of it. You, you see my argument? Yeah. Um, so how do you address, like at the sharp end of the stick would be, how do you address a Chinese uncle living in HDB who's a grab driver and doing a second job and struggling to feed his family and tell him that there's Chinese privilege, right? Yeah. And then if you struggle for Malay rights, then he'll say, why is your community benefiting at my expense? Right? Why, why are you so special that you get more when I am also struggling? I can't, you know, I went to Nanta and I'm driving a Grab or a taxi, right? I have a university degree that's not recognized. You know, I can't make ends meet. I've struggled all my life, right? And that's what people in the 50s were also talking about. They're like, and that's the, the, the question. Do you struggle for the rights of everyone and try and suppress differences? Or do you bring out differences to struggle for everyone's individual rights, but then knowing that that would sharpen the conflicts within your society? And in the end, what they agreed was class was the way forward. But somehow in our world, even though class solidarity should be the, you know, your economic relationships are the determining factor in uh, the, the most strong, strongest factor in how you live. Somehow we over. Uh, PJ, I think he. <laughs> okay. Actually, I can't tell where he stopped. I know he was saying somehow we. Yes. Oh. oh. Okay, you're back. Sort of. Um, gosh, what was I saying? Somehow, I was. Oh man, sorry. Um, I was. I was in full flow there. Uh, but I. I just. It was just as a. Um, Okay, so yeah, so I was saying that. Okay, you one know, second, you're still your 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 video is still frozen. Uh, sorry, sorry, I it's don't okay. know what to do. Um. Well, I mean, we can continue, but you, I think you'll want this for your video. Okay, uh, there you go. My Sarah's frozen on my screen now. She's she's not on mine though. I think it might just be your connection. But you're okay. I think you look you look fine now. You're okay. Okay. Um, but Sarah's still frozen on mine. What do I do? Um, I think since I'm recording from my end, and she seems to be work. I mean, her video seems to be working from mine. I think it's fine. I don't think it will affect the the video in the end. Uh. Can my Sarah, okay, can she's back. Okay. okay, okay, now she's back on mine. Okay, <laughs> all right. Okay, so what I was saying was, 
Um, so even though economic relationships are the most powerful determining factor in how we lead our lives and how, how people see us, right? In terms of how we're treated by society and governments, we instead focus on identity and, and nationalism, right? Uh, identity markers like race or gender, sexuality, you know, instead of looking at class consciousness and economic relationships, even though capitalism is the most powerful force that, that, that shapes our society. So is this part of the problem then to talk about race rather than class? Um, I guess that's when, you know, people bring up intersectionality, right? Where if I bring up something, doesn't mean I'm not acknowledging. Okay, that. but hold on. I'm making a political argument, right? So intersectionality, yes. Um, but my my question is, how do we resolve this this conflict between if you bring up race, you risk sharpening the difference and alienating the majority, and you need a majority in order to create change. You, you, you see my point. Whereas, um, if you know the argument, the counter argument um, would be, you need to protect the rights of every single individual and in every single community. The, this is the central paradox. The more you fight for individual rights, the more we risk fracturing um, our broad coalition of people who want to create change. Because the more you put people at loggerheads with each other within the community of people who are oppressed by the elites. Yes, but I think like, you know, to assume that like everyone, um, I'm not saying that you assume, but you know, when if people get, I feel like defensive when when a, min a racial minority brings up something, um, they need to understand that it's not an attack on that person, right? So if I bring up very inter interesting point about like a Grab driver, right? Or like a, a who lives in a HDB. Um, when you, of course, you know, we acknowledge the, the erasure of like the Chinese dialects, you know, um, my grandma's Chinese, you can't speak to her like nieces and nephews because, you know, she doesn't speak Mandarin, she only speaks Malay and Cantonese. Um, but that saying, um, let's say you have two, like you have like a, a Malay auntie and a Chinese auntie or Malay uncle, Chinese uncle who is of the same like economic class. Both of them can't speak English. Um, one can only speak Mandarin and the other one can only speak um, Malay. You know, then the question would be who would find it easier to survive in this country, right? Um, would, or where would the support for each person come, you know. Um, you have stories of like, you know, um, minorities who can speak Mandarin and still not get a job, right? You have stories of minorities who um, who get frustrated because the, the, their work meeting is in Chinese. Mm. So it, it goes beyond like, you know, um, or, you know, yes, we are, we are oppressed by, um, by the by the elites, but sometimes for us, even before we can address that, we have to address the issue that's happening in within our circles. You know, um, we we have to like go through one step of like, hey guys, like let's like even a basic of let's speak in English. You know, in a work meeting, which affects you know our job, and then you know you want, and then we still have to address uh, um what the elite is doing. So it's that ever I think um labor when it comes to race. But of course, I do hear where you're coming from and I obviously don't agree with, you know, isolating it. But I think it's, you know, how do we speak about it with the majority understanding it's not a personal attack. It's like, hey, this is happening and sometimes it's a hindrance from, you know, um, from us actually forming that, like, um, that, um, 
or, or coming up, coming together to actually address what the elites are doing, right? Um, which is why it's very interesting. Sometimes you hear like, you know, um, Malays who live in like rental flats, I don't have time for this. I just need to feed my kids. You know, you want me to talk about the government, I don't have time. You know, and it makes me think like, where is my position? And 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 fair enough, right? Um, um, when you talk about, let's say, a, a, a Chinese man who, 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 who drives Grab from morning to night because he has to take care of the family as compared to me who probably definitely earns more than he does. But sometimes when you get, get on the Grab, the first thing they say, like, you know, I like would be very racist, racist remarks, you know, mm, and then, yeah. um, then, then that causes, already causes a split in that sense. So, so I think the focus would be, you know, how can we address um, the issue of race you know, and ensure that, you know, the, 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 the minorities feel like, okay, you know, like um, the immediate like needs, because sometimes it's not about just when we complain or like or people assume that we complain, when we raise these issues, most of the time it's actually also an issue of safety, yeah. right? Um, are we able to tell you like, hey, um, I experienced this today. Um, because a lot of times we second, second guess ourselves, you know, is this really racism? Are, are we like really... Um, are we really um, experiencing it or are we just being sensitive? Um, and that, again, takes a lot of labor, you know, and sometimes we already have to do that labor to our Chinese friends who are more progressive, you know, but still may, may not really completely understand in that and in the aspect, you know. Yeah, so sometimes it's like, you know, um, again, just because, you know, you are, let's say, um, a, a, a guy who is um, left-leaning or is more progressive in certain uh, certain parts doesn't mean you're not misogynistic, right? And just because, you know, you 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 see how oppressive a state is doesn't mean you cannot cannot reproduce certain race, race, racial stereotypes or very racist ideologies, you know? So I think as a, like, as a double minority, I think that is the, that I think that is like a I want to say a, a hindrance, but that is a step that we have to go through sometimes to tell to tell like um um our Chinese friends like hey you know like actually your ideas is still quite problematic when it comes to race you know we appreciate and we definitely on the same page when it comes to talking about let's say freedom of press or certain issues um that you know like um, the death penalty but when it comes to race you know it's it's, it's still very much problematic right. Um, I have faced like minority men, brown men who are also supposedly very like you know progressive in terms of like you know being critical of the state, but they are the most misogynistic bunch of people I know, mm. right? right? So but yes, you can talk about race, but when it comes to gender, you like you know they are really misogynistic. So that is like, I I guess for me as like a a a, a Malay woman, that's a biggest challenge I have I think when we talk about like um yeah, politics, yeah. if you can unpack that a bit right because that is in a in a nutshell the the problem that I pose that you are you need to find common cause with this you know theoretical Malay man who's very uh, misogynistic um and you can find common cause on race but you're really opposed on gender how do you do that um I've come to realize at least this is very like you know Malay men um who are misogynistic but are very progressive when it comes to let's say um state oppression 
you know, actually a lot of it comes from inherent biases of what the Malay community is. So that's something they have not unpacked yet, race, you know. And because everything is so intertwined, sometimes you, you realise you've only, like, unpacked a certain part, but if not unpacked a certain, uh, another part, you know, you still probably grew up feeling inferior that you have not, like, dealt with, you know. Um, so you want the appeal of, um, I guess, you know, the majority, like, um, community, you know, so I realize these are like men who not talk about like um, um, gender so much, you know, um, or sometimes their works may revolve around um, state oppression, but they will not talk about race because they want to appeal to the more like liberal, like majority, you know, who may not be comfortable talking about race either. Yeah, so... Um, because you know, like yeah, like I said, you know, you can be Chinese and you can you can be against state oppression, but you know, you may not be comfortable like talking about race, like let's say like what I'm doing with you right now, you know, like yeah, let's talk about state oppression, you know, like but now yeah, when it comes to race, I don't want to talk about it. So these brown men, you know, because they want to appeal to the majority, because they themselves face, face racism without realizing it, um, a lot of their politics, you know, is very um pick and choose. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about this because I know like my majority friends will be comfortable with me talking about it. You know, but when it comes to race and gender, um, yeah, you know, like I still have a lot of like inherent like misogyny or biasness that I have not like unpacked yet. So it sounds like they're defending their privilege. Where they are privileged, they defend it. Yeah. Where they are not, they protest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you have that for like, I think if, okay, gender aside, it's like Malay political elites, right? When you raise something, they be like, oh, but I made it. So maybe right. it's not a race problem. Maybe it's a you problem, right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, like, well, um, I'm, I'm the token like Malay in the Navy. So like, yeah, the, you know, like there's no racism in the Navy, you know? Yes, like, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I met know that. The, like yeah, that. there's one, <laughs> there was one Malay general and therefore there's no racism yes, in the SAF. Yeah, yeah. So why, why after like how many years, you know? Yes. Yeah. So um which I guess essentially that boils down to me the issue of power, right? Yeah. Um who are we protecting? Who are we giving space to? Um, are we protecting people in power who are not willing to change status quo, who doesn't want to change status quo? Do we want to change status quo? Do we want to give up our privilege? Um and that's something that um that is very fascinating also, I think, as a minority, because you know, the moment you've maybe like achieved certain like um economic um um status, you know, um there's this whole debate about whether you have a right to talk about class issue, you know. Mm. Um, because being a my I guess a Malay minor like a Malay minority, the idea of success is always like we always assume that there's only like a percentage of like Malays who can be successful you know like we have to fight for a spot you yeah. know and and we've it's become so ingrained that like you know we must always be living in poverty doesn't mean we don't critique capitalist structures of course we, we still mm. do but this assumption that we must always be living in poverty because we are Malay you know sounds um, like you know a catch-22 if you live in poverty oh well clearly you're not smart enough because you didn't yeah. have broken out of poverty whereas if you break yeah. out of poverty Oh, you know, you no longer understand what it means to yes. be poor. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. So for this false, I think race aside this false, false idea that someone who lives in poverty immediately breaks out of poverty when they have education, right? I think that is like race and gender aside, which is not true. Because a lot of times, you know, you your family may only have enough to um 
to maybe like send one child to, to university education. And then it is dependent on you to be able to help out, help, you know, um, support the family, you know. So you may have like a good starting pay in that sense, you know, um, but most of that pay goes into like supporting your siblings, your parents and things like that. So the idea of like economic success, you know, especially when it comes to like race, you know, um, because a lot of these very, very successful like Malays or like, you know, especially in elite power, they do come from privileged like families, right? Um, and that's why there's need, this need, you know, during like political like elections for them to play up the poverty. Oh, I grew up in a kampong, climbed trees. That's why I didn't do well in school. Um, um uh, which down, downplays the fact that, you know, you do have like a bunch of elite Malays who are also protecting their status quo, you know, and they are not interested in changing it because no one wants to give up their privilege. Yeah. Okay. If, if I can summarize a bit, then it sounds like there's certain things that we, the problem um, structurally in Singapore, th- there's a lack of, um, time right first you you mentioned people in in your community and actually people in every community don't want to get involved in politics because they say we have no time we need to feed our families right and that leads to the myth that oh people in singapore voters the majority of voters only care about bread and butter issues yes. you know i think people care about a lot of things but when you're poor when you're struggling to make ends meet it focuses your mind on a few things yeah. um and so that's that's the first thing, right? Time and uh, and then the second would be space. We in Singapore, it feels like we don't have the space to talk about certain issues because obviously the PAP has made it very clear they don't want us talking about race, they don't want us talking about religion, they don't want us to talk about certain issues in which they have not managed to solve after how many seventy years, seventy something years in power, right? Uh, since since fifty nine. Right, um, they have not managed to solve um, the the deep fractures that um, exist in our society over people of different race and people who speak different languages, people who have different religions. So, with language, they solved it by imposing a single language on everyone. But with race and religion, they can't solve it, so they just refuse to let us talk about it. And as a result, we can't. We, it feels like we, we don't have the experience or maturity to talk about these things. And then the third thing, what I'm hearing is there's a certain impatience, I think, to, um, to these issues that we want them solved now, but they are very deep-seated issues which take time. So every time we talk about them, there's a desire to get them solved immediately when actually these sort of issues take hundreds of years maybe to solve, right? Patient work of uh, bridging differences. But again, we live in a country where the government's like, no, we're, we're not willing to have this dialogue debate. Shut it down. We'll solve it right now by just imposing a system on everyone, whether that's a CMIO or just you know a certain number of religions and religious leaders are recognized and um and and they then are, are in charge of controlling their community right so um and and then the last thing i'm hearing is is it's also power and this is a, another problem in singapore where because power is so winner takes all the moment you have some power you're terrified of losing it and there you don't have any expectation that you know power will change hands 
And so it becomes a very zero-sum game. You got to hold on to it and keep others out of it and, and hold on to your privilege at any cost. So yeah, so that's kind of my 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 summation of of, of what I'm hearing. Like, we we have these horrible horrible racist racism in Singapore, but we can't solve it because we don't have the time, we don't have the space, we don't have the the process, the trust, and the people in power are really threatened by it. Does that sound accurate? Yes, but so you know, I think for me, like especially when I get like online, you know, and you see like the younger generation getting like more vocal about it, you know, you, you know, and, and even a majority like might like, you know, um, I guess Gen Z's uh, are starting to understand and they don't take it personally. I think it's amazing. And I, I would like, I guess in the, in, in the near future, going back to, you know, what we we're talking about, what is this idea of solidarity, right? Because yeah. um, I think that that is very important. And I do, I think in some sense we are building into it and I hope we, you know, that like we can go deeper into that, um, into what this idea of solidarity is. Because I do, I guess in some sense, feel that people are recognizing the issues and they can point it out, right? It's just that like, like I think all, among all the things that you've pointed out, you know, uh, we've never really had a chance to like sit down and like, hey guys, you've seen all of this, like how can we move forward, you know? But again, because sometimes, you know, um, it's hard not to, right? To get like, like, um, distracted by like whatever is going behind because every time you know we see another like IPS like um mm. conference we're like oh no not, not this again like here we go again you know it feels like we're going back so I think it's also learning like you know while you know it's important to understand what um is going on, on the ground um to also not let it I think um push back the progress that we've made you know. Okay, but to come back to solidarity, right? I think that's a good point. But that, that brings us back to my earlier point. How do you build solidarity with people when those people are, might be fundamentally opposed to you on other issues? Whether, you know, on the class level, it's with the, the Chinese Nanta graduate who's a grab driver. Whether on a gender level, it's the Malay misogynistic man. <laughs> you know, um, you, you want to build racial solidarity with the Malay man, but then you're deeply divided on gender solidarity. You want to build class solidarity with the Chinese uncle, but then you're deeply divided on race. So how, how do we do this? How do we build solidarity with people when in other facets of identity, they're deeply divided from you? I think that's, that's a really fundamental question here. And that's, we, you know, because these markers of identity have been so used to divide us and atomize us in Singapore that it becomes hard to build that solidarity because that's how the elites divide us. You know, yep. all these other ways they use, if we fight on identity politics in this area, elites use identity politics in that area to div divide us, right? So it feels like the very same thing that empowers us in groups also divides us, making it really hard for all the oppressed majority, the working class of Singapore, the non-elites who are you know, being really exploited by this racist capitalist system to seize their rights collectively. Yeah, I think, you know, um, for me, it's like, especially with, let's say, you know, the, the point about, um, let's say, the Chinese grab driver, right? Um, possibly, you know, I think one thing that we definitely need to address is like, a loss in translation 
in that sense, like, he actually, like what you said, you know, we, we are all facing the same issue from the same group of elites, right? And we can see that the elite group is multiracial in that aspect. So why are they still, like, you know, pushing for, for policies that essentially are oppressive, right? And maybe, you know, people of our, our backgrounds, we will have a better understanding of it. So I think that's going back to, like, why I do what I do is that I realise that, you know, there is a loss of translation between that same me and a great driver when I'm trying to talk about race issue and when he's trying to talk about like class issue that he faces, you know, but essentially how do I then, I think this is where my interests like, like have like gone. How do I translate all these like research papers, you know, which is stuck in this ivory tower, but very, very essential in understanding um, power and elites and oppression into a layman terms. Right. So that everyone can under, be on the same page. You know, I feel that there's this like lack of like, I won't say lack of communication, just that everyone is saying one point, but we can't really understand each other because, you know, whether it's a difference um, in the language that we use or how we express it, you know, um, it'd be great, I think, in, in when we talk about solidarity, also having this, like, language to understand, you know. Um, you know, well, is that is that where something like brown is haram comes in? I wanted to talk about that, but <laughs> yes, you know, we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah. But yeah, is that part of your um, how you're yes. trying to make things accessible? Um, yeah. So, um, brown is haram is a project that I started with my friends, um, uh, Kristen, and also now we've put in um, um, Malian uh, Te, who's our director into it, because we realized that you know, um, all three of us come from rather like I would say like privileged education, education background, um, but we have similar experiences and, you know, our parents do as well. So we wanted to use narratives, um, simple narratives, I think, and stories um, to put um, experiences out there, including ours, you know. So how do we use these common um, stories and, like, uh, form a language that is accessible to all? You know, so regardless of whether like, you know, you come from a certain background, you can still come, watch and understand what we are trying to say. So language was very important for me. For at least my part of the writing, I was very, very, um, um, I really made sure that I didn't use any like big words or languages, you know, in, in writing down my part. Um, because like I said, my, my for me, whenever I do any form of work, it's very, very important that your nasi padang uh, or your chaifan auntie can understand what I'm trying to say. You know, because there's no point in like me, even as a like a as a as a brown woman to do all this kind of, of work, but like, you know, my, my the machi doesn't get it, you know. Um and I have the like class privilege as compared to her in that sense. So for me, like language is very, very crucial in I think addressing these issues and how accessible it is. Okay, and what, what else have you got in the pipeline? What else can we look forward to? Um, well, I'll be presenting at the Singapore Art Week. So if you watch Raw It's Haram, there's a segment on um, me pretending to like, or to look on me exploring what this idea of like a, a successful Malay woman look like. So that will be on, on our video form. Okay, so I think that's all the time we have left. If, if our listeners want to access any more of your work, will you be publishing your, your master's thesis? Um, I hope so. Uh, first of all, I have to like get it done. <laughs> yes, I definitely like hope to like get it published. Yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming on the show, my Sarah. Um, and um, you know, thank you, uh, our listener, for tuning in. And um, if you enjoyed, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please go to newnarrative.com/slash/join to join New Narrative as a member, or go to newnarrative.com/slash/donate. 
to donate. We really need your support. New Narrative is a member-supported organization, and we really do need uh, your support to keep going. So thank you very much, everyone, and see you next time. Thank you.